It's December 10th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Uh, as you well know, if you've been listening to the show, I've been having some technical problems, and I've hopefully have resolved them. Um, today's episode with Kim Kamenich is a, a episode that I had to heavily edit because I was having some distortion problems, but I'm hoping that I've sa- salvaged enough of it for it to still be a very interesting interview, and uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. But before I get to that, I really want to thank all the people who responded to the, the last episode. I had some trepidation about uploading uh, um, such a sort of personal rant um, regarding my own photographic uh, career, but with the response that I've gotten, uh, I'm really grateful that that I did it, and uh, it looks like it really uh, was worthwhile for a lot of people to listen to. So um, thank you again, and I really appreciate it. But today's guest is Kim Komenich, and he's currently a staff photographer at the San Francisco Chronicle and has been since uh, 1982. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer, uh, and he won an award for uh, his documentation of the Philippine Revolution back in 1987. But along with being a uh, you know, prolific photographer at, uh, at the paper, he's also a, a great educator, and he's been teaching photography and documenting photography in a, in a variety of different venues, including the Missouri Photographic Workshop, which is one of the premier uh, workshops in the world of photojournalism. And uh, it's it's a fantastic program if you're not familiar with it, and I suggest you check it out on online when you have the chance. But uh, Kim is a real proponent not only of photojournalism but documentary photography, and he's one of the uh, people responsible for the San Francisco Exposure Gallery, which is a nonprofit venue that uh, promotes some important documentary photography work. And so, if you're ever in San Francisco, I suggest that you check it out. But you know, I, I really have uh, enjoyed uh, Kim's work, and I really was looking forward to having the opportunity to, to talk to him, not only about his personal work, but just about the overall state of, of uh, photojournalism, particularly multimedia. And I think you guys are going to be um, uh, really enjoy the, the next couple of minutes. So thank you again for uh, joining me, and here is our interview with Kim Komenich. Well, let's go ahead and, and get started. And what I'd like to, to start off with first off is just to find out about how you came in, into photography. I know a lot about your, your work over the years, but I don't know much about your beginnings. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Okay. Um, well, my, my photographic career started back in Hanover Valley in California, a town called Manteca. And I got a tap on the shoulder from uh, my photography teacher, Bill Forbes, and he said that editor of the newspaper wants to talk to you. They need a guy to work in the darkroom after school to develop the reporter's film. And so from about age 15, before I could drive, I think, I was already working in a newspaper office. It was right in the era, in the early 70s, when W. Eugene Smith was wrapping up Minamata, and some of the real classic Life magazine stories had already hit by then, you know, some of the Bill Epridge stories and some of the the classics. So I was really inspired by picture stories in Life magazine, and then I got a job in the newspaper business when I was 15. Mm. 
And then uh, did you segue in, into, uh, you went to college somewhere, or did you segue? Oh, yeah. So, I'm, yeah. so in, in terms of the education, I finished my, my, um, my high school. At that point, I'd already had three years as a, uh, a yearbook photographer and a school paper photographer. And along, in addition to that, I was already shooting uh, weddings. And it's a great way to learn the decisive moment is to shoot mm-hmm. weddings. And I bet you I did 200 of them by the time I was in college. So um, I went on to San Jose State University and, and uh, went on to work for the, as an intern at the Contra Costa Times in Walnut Creek, California. And um, the Bay Area at that point, the San Francisco area, was just a hotbed of, uh, you know, photojournalism um, experimentation. Some of the best work I found uh, was happening in this in. In San Francisco, it was it was the uh, the Chronicle and the Examiner um, really didn't want to buy one of these new presses in the 70s. They they uh, they what they did is they just had an old letter press. For me, it was a matter of um, just um, you know sort of aspiring to work at the San Francisco uh, newspapers. You know, initially the uh, the Chronicle. Uh, initially at the Examiner, and uh, and then you know after the merger it was um, um, at the at the Chronicle in 2000. So Eli Reed, who went on to Magnum, Nicole Benjavino, who is uh, with Lee, they're both at the New York Times now, and they were all in this wonderful kind of experiment everybody was having with black and white photography in the uh, in the late 70s in San you were, Francisco. You were saying that you so, you were drawn because you felt that the best photo- photographic work was being done there. What specifically was it about it that was the best? Was it the, the storytelling? This stage that newspapers started sending photographers all over the world. I mean, the Bay Area was one of the, one of the great spots for that. Um, uh, Eli went to, you know, Central America. He went, he, he's done just so many great projects. Nicole uh, Benjavino went to uh, the Thai-Cambodia border. And then, keep in mind, this is for a newspaper that had a circulation of maybe 250,000 um, papers. We're doing color projects. The, chron- the Examiner and Chronicle people were still shooting good old, you know, magnum-looking black and white. And that, that was what fascinated me. It was just, you know, in a way, it was kind of like working as a, a freelance agency photographer while working as a daily newspaper photographer. We were just going absolutely crazy taking black and white yeah. pictures and doing important stories with, um, you know, the black and white medium. And for me, it's always been... Uh, you know, Cartier-Bresson talks about it. It's it's black and white is about geometry, you know, and and uh, and and for me, color is more about weight and balance. You know, uh, you know, a little bit of red goes a long way in a color picture. If the emotion in the photograph or confuse the photographer's intent uh, are taken away when you're dealing with black and white because it's just about shapes, mm-hmm. essentially shapes and emotion. Well, one of the international. So for me, it was just very. Anyway, one of the international stories you did was uh, the one that you won the Pulitzer for, the the one in uh, in the Philippines during the during the revolution. Uh, tell us about about that experience, uh, especially uh, in contrast to your recent experience in 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 Iraq. Sure. Um, you know, I was very lucky to to work um, on some international work in while I was in my twenties. Some some international assignments. I worked in the Philippines um, initially in 1984. Um, you know, the, the, 
the story we went to cover was based on the fact that a political opponent of Ferdinand Marcos, the president of the Philippines, and some would call him a dictator, Aquino was killed in 1983. I started um, traveling to the Philippines with uh, with Phil Bronstein, who's now my boss. Now he's the executive editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, where I work today. I began traveling with him in 1984. He was actually there in 83 when Aquino was uh, assassinated. But Anyway, our um, the first couple of years of our work was dedicated mostly to, to sort of documenting some of the political and um, social issues that was leading to this rising opposition against Marcos, you know, injustices against people uh, perpetrated by people who were, you know, essentially supporters of the government. And um, we traveled on the on the other side of the coin. We traveled with the New People's Army. We traveled with some of the, the Muslim groups in Mindanao. And, and you know, the island it's seven more than seventy one hundred islands in the Philippines. It's just a just a fascinating place to work in the first place if you were just doing any kind of photography. So um, that led, um, in my as far as my experience, it led to nineteen eighty six, which um, where Marcos uh, called a snap election. And um, the widow of Benigno Aquino, Corazon Aquino, ran against Marcos, and essentially she won the election, or at least it was nebulous as to what was who was going to be the president. So um, the interesting part of this, it was right at the time when CNN uh, was able to broadcast live TV of people in the streets for the first time around the world. I mean, it might have happened in smaller cases before, but the Philippine Revolution was really the first time people in the U.S., people in Australia, everybody simultaneously saw some of these things happening. You know, Marcos, because of wanting to save face and try to make things, retain his presidency while still, you know, not having to kill his own people, he flinched. For the, you know, he was a pretty iron-fisted kind of guy until the TV images showed up. Some of these other great um, live TV events where people were um, enabled and, and empowered by the fact that they were the whole world was watching. So this is the era that I was working in as a still photographer. And of course, the access was, you know, it was great for me. As far as just a collection of experiences, I'll tell you, there's nothing like it. And if you contrast that with what I did in Iraq in 2005, um, I got to the Iraq story after it was fairly a done deal that it was unsafe to be a unilateral journalist. Those of us who do the, you know, the, the story about the war itself, um, you need to get out out of Baghdad. You need to get out in the countryside, and and uh, there was only one way to do it, and that was to to embed. At least as far as our newspapers saw it, the only way to do it was to embed. So um, the restrictions are obvious when you're embedded. You're traveling with them, uh, you're surrounded by guys with guns, and you're the only one with a camera. I used what I know as a photographer to sort of explain that awkward situation I was in whenever possible. You know, there, there, were, there weren't really any photo ops, but it was sort of a dance, you know. It was sort of a, it was, it, I was on edge in a different way. In the 80s, when I was working in the Philippines, it was about... Um, just where to be and how one's one side story and continue continue to advance the story we were working on. The, you know, when you're traveling as an embed, you're only covering one side of the aisle. The great uh, uh, author uh, called it a worm's eye view. I mean, basically all I knew on any given day was what those guys and that Humvee yeah. did. 
considering the restrictions of, of time and, and whatever restrictions placed on you by the fact that you're embedded, how much are how much dependent are you on the relationships that you develop with these people, even considering how brief they may be, have in terms of your ability to be able to bring photographs that are really strong, that really tell the story of, of the events that you're witnessing? I traveled with uh, the, the Chronicle reporter Anna Bodkin, who is uh, currently now working for the Boston Globe. Um, she was our international correspondent, and uh, and I, you know, I, I have to say, you know, one of the great ways to learn about reporting and how to ask questions and how to how to structure a story in words is to work as a photographer. And I, I've been in the privileged over the years to work with some of the best. I'm at Bronstein and with with Anna. You know, the stories were always about um, little things that were spoke to greater issues you know we would we would just go out on the patrol with some guys one day and you know one of my strongest audio pieces was about just sitting on a roadside with these guys who were trying to keep a road open for the transport troops you know that's one of the challenges we're facing now in multimedia is when to put the camera down and pick the microphone up so it's 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 an interesting issue and it's um in in working in iraq it was about these little stories and and just the sense of even in the context of um it was it was definitely fair it was it wasn't as though it was a pr job for the military by any means it was it was nothing like a pr job even though we were traveling with them we always sought the other side's um response to, to what now we that were doing the military wasn't very happy with what we wrote either we got Fair amount of, I mean, that's a good way of telling you're a good job is you're getting, you know, nasty notes from both sides. So <laughs> that, way, that way you either must be fair or you just must be extremely lousy reporter, one of the two. <laughs> lousy photographer and reporter. Now that, you're, now that your work is, 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 is much about the still image, uh, as much about multimedia, recording audio, maybe video, um, how is that changing the way that... That maybe not the way you photograph, but the way that you, you, you see a story, because now you have to consider not just the still images you're producing, but whatever audio content they're gonna, you're going you're gonna to record for the purpose of putting a, a multimedia presentation up on the web. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. I'm not doing that much multimedia for the Chronicle. It's not a, not a lot right now. There's two other photographers who are full-time video shooters at our paper. That being said, I'll, I'll, tell, you this, I'll tell you what I know. Um, a good way of looking at this is that every situation has uh, its video possibilities, its audio possibilities, its still possibilities. If you think of how every symphony you've ever heard or every opera you've ever heard is a crescendo, right? There's that, you know, its own brand of decisive moment, you know. So, uh, and I think that the task now for the multimedia journalists is to have all these tools in your tool your tool belt and anticipate which crescendo is about to hit. About it's about in the old days when we used to reach uh, Richard Kochi Hernandez from uh, MultimediaShooter.com during an interview I did with him said that where we used to have a camera bag full of lenses and we knew exactly when we needed to pull out the 80 to 200 or exactly when we needed to pull out the 14 or the zoom. Now we need to know when to pull out the audio and when to pull out the, you know, which which of those multimedia tools we need 
is as important to this generation as which of those lenses we needed was mm. as, was important. Yeah. To. That's a, a great way of explaining it, is what Richard told me about the idea that it's just a whole new set of tools. And, you know, and of course, if you think about it, I mean, you know, it's all files, it's all data. It's, it's you know, if you think about dot .doc, that's a word file, dot .jpg, it's a still file, it's, you know, dot .mov or... Since we've moved from being a still journalist trying to put pictures on a page to being a field producer, somebody who's got who's gathering assets to be produced yeah. later, and um, that that's one way of looking at it. You teach at the Missouri Photographic Workshop uh, each year, um, and I'm wondering how you know. You, Probably the, the latest group of students you had over the last several years is a generation who's always known the internet, and these are the, these are students and, and and photographers who are going to be the new storytellers uh, using the sort of multimedia, using still, using audio, using video. What do you what have you seen over the years? Have you seen any much of a difference in terms of the way that they 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 see um, the role of of, of images and, and digital storytelling? Um, you know, it's interesting. The people who go to the Missouri workshop are very much, you know, as much as Missouri, I think, is preparing for the multimedia aspects, a lot of people just want to come and go deep in learning how to do a traditional Life magazine picture story, you know. And I think that is, I think it's a valid way to proceed because it, I always use a, a musical analogy at a time like this because it's, uh, you know, it's about learning your musicianship somewhere, right? Whether you play the piano or the saxophone or the bass or whatever, but you've got to get your chops somewhere, right? And for us, it's our storytelling chops. You're finding your boundaries. You're finding, you know, what challenges you, where, you're, where, you're, where you get scared and you want to go home. I mean, and that's what workshops like Missouri are all about is immersion. And I mean, I, I honestly don't think it matters. I mean, if you're, if you're doing a you know, a, a, a radio documentary picture story. If you're immersed with a subject long enough, you're going to learn something about yourself as a human with whatever tool you're using. And I think that's the key is to, to break through the technical part. I mean, this is a great Charlie Parker quote, you know, you know, learn your instrument and then practice, practice, practice. And then when you get up on stage, forget all of that and just wait. That's where you want to you want to approach teaching multimedia that way. Somebody, you have to go deep somewhere in in storytelling and just knowing, you know, the the essential things. You know, how do I get into the story? How do I get out of it? Do that with. Any kind of camera, you know, or any kind of, you know, audio or with words. And it's the same problem. It's just that the tools are different. And I think the discerning multimedia journalist is going to be the one who really thrives in this. There were some interesting events that happened uh, this past week that I'd like to, to hear your, your perspective on it. Uh, Louis Cinco, who is a photographer for the Los Angeles Times, has been photographing uh, an Iraq, uh, Iraq vet who he had photographed in Iraq. Um, and his the picture of him became particularly famous. It was often recognized as being called the Marlboro Man. But uh, Marlboro Man, uh, yeah, right. And uh, he uh, covered him on, on his return from from um, from Iraq, and he seemed to be suffering from uh, traumatic uh, stress disorder. And at some point, when uh, Lewis was was uh, uh, you know photographing him, he realized that he really needed some help, and he took the initiative to actually take him to a treatment center uh, to to get some help. And there's been a lot of you know, a lot of buzz about it, saying that, you know, 
uh, a photographer shouldn't get involved in in the story. Are you familiar with with the events surrounding that? You know, I all week I've been trying to get to to sit down and watch this thing. I have not seen his his production his 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 piece yet, and I'm, I can't really speak to the pictures. But for many years, ran the Missouri Photo Workshop. Always described it to his students as the three levels of immersion. Uh, when you're in a, any sort of a long-term story, you're going to get initially a person giving you the how-do-you-do tour. You know, they'll show you around the house, they'll pour you a cup of coffee, show you the family album. And then the second level is where we where we get most of the pictures we see, which is where you're accepted and you're welcomed and you can walk in the door when you want to and leave when you want to and and you're in. And then Kirkendall says the third level is is this level where they're showing you things they, that are wrong about themselves or the situation, and you're so, they expect you to be so close to them that they can share this with you, you know, things that they might do that are illegal or things that they do that are, you know, spouse battery or, or you know, things that are obviously uh, wrong, you know, and to a normal person would be a wrong thing. You know, it's that crazy edge where, well, what, it's just about, what's this about here? Is this about me or is this about, you know, me the photographer or me the human being. And, you know, I've always taught my students to, you know, be a human being first. And if it means stopping the story, you know, helping the person, you know, if they're, if they're you know, in some sort of a dangerous situation, if they're suicidal, if they're, um, if there's, you know, I'm not saying to physically intervene, but maybe to call somebody mm-hmm. who should. I mean, I don't have a problem at all with that because that's what a human being would do. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a it's an awkward call because at the point you become a human being, you can't be a photographer. Mm. You know, once you're part of the story, yeah. that's it. For the purposes of you know, we're talking about crescendos again. For the you know that crescendo that day is a human crescendo. It's like this is like bigger than photography, and you know, for what we do, um, that's really what this is about. Is is did you ever have such a know, moment yourself where it was you, know, you were like you felt like you were on the line and you had to kind of decide which which way were you going to go? Uh, yeah, I think mostly during situations where it was uh, maybe helping out at a, a fight. I remember helping a guy carry a couch out of a burning house. Um, not, I, I don't recall anything like that in Iraq. Carried somebody and temporarily just stopped being a photographer. There was a guy shot next to me during the day of the big shootouts in the in, in the Philippines, and and uh, I, I helped him out. He was, you know, I, I carried, helped guided him. I didn't really carry him. I was out of it. I was a participant, you know. Mm-hmm. And as much as immersion is about participation in, in sort of a weird fly-in-the-wall way, I mean, you, there's there's a fine line between, you know, this photo, um, this photographer altering the situation, and I think it invalidates it as a story at that point. If you see it, you know, and I think it, you know, it should be duly noted in this in the written story what happened, and uh, that's, you know, that's one of the costs of being intimate with your subjects is you get that. Oh, you've been a and it's one of the, I gotta tell you, it's one of the real privileges yeah. too, is to have that sort of trust. And that's that's what keeps us coming back. It's the idea that people, you know, at times like that will will trust us with everything. And, and that's yeah. in, and that's embodied a lot in a lot of the documentary work that that uh, that that's been created. And in your support of that, you and uh, Rick Rockamora 
uh, started the uh, Exposure Gallery. So why don't, why don't you tell us about, about that, why it came about, and what role you see it plays in, in, in that kind of photographic work. Right. Okay. Rick Rockamora is a Bay Area-based uh, social documentary photographer. Rick became a photographer and went on to Nicaragua and Cuba, Central America, all over El Salvador. Did a lot of great photography there and went on to do um, a very compelling story about the plight of the Filipino World War II veterans in uh, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, living in just terrible conditions in hotels. So it's, it's called America's Second Class Veterans. And uh, essentially, they, they get half the benefits if they're in the Philippines, and they get, they get more benefits. They get better benefits if they live in the U.S. Anybody in any town um, who wants to keep the documentary spirit alive is there's always some little storefront or some little room in a building upstairs somewhere that a merchant or a, a librarian will donate uh, the use of to uh, somebody who has who wants to have a photo night or have a photo gallery. Currently, we're showing a, an exhibit about a um, the uh, the plight of thousands and thousands of senior citizens who were relocated so that their the hotels they lived in could be torn down to make the uh, Moscone Center. Um, and the photographer Ira Nowinski, um, again, this is. This is the this is what photograph documentary photography really is. It's not based on assignments. It's not based on you know selling stuff for the most part. You've got the goods. You've got the complete photographic record of some social issue that happened. You know, and it, I just heard this recently. Danny Lyons spoke at Stanford, and he said that you know for thirty years I was broke, and now I'm rich. So there's <laughs> a whole kind of a different payoff in documentary. What our gallery is is show enough photojournalism and enough documentary photography to, to give documentary photographers um, an opportunity to influence the photojournalism in the Bay Area. And long-term projects are sort of what we do. Any photographer who's got any sort of an interest in this to just know that it's possible to get a free gallery and free insurance as long as you've the spirit's there for it. Somebody's probably going to sense that and, and just give you the keys to the store. And we've never paid a cent of rent. We don't sell prints. We're open just a few hours a week. But Well, the, the last question I always end on is that I ask a photographer to suggest another photographer, just one, that uh, they think that our listeners should you know, go out and discover. So who would that be for you and why? Well, well I'll tell you, I've got several and they're mostly my influences on on my career i i just uh you know i i can't say enough about mrs kudelka myself because he he um you know in my little way of teaching about journalism and he, he's not a photojournalist he saw things other people couldn't see and i that's I, that's what i always point out to people that's really our job Dirk Halstead says, you know, we're paid to be lucky every day. I like to think of it as the stage, the furniture, and the actors. I mean, we have, we've got complete control over certain elements of the photo. You know, that building's not going to move, and that bush isn't going to move. And the real, those are the nouns of the story, right? And then we just wait for the verbs to be in the right place. It, that's all it was. It was, it was a, a photographer really having control over that frame, a sense of where it's going to be, and, 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 
unifying the elements and, and just reducing this three-dimensional world into this two-dimensional frame in such a way that it, it sinks, you know. Well, thanks, Kim. That's a great suggestion. And just thank you for, for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks again for joining me. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post the message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.